Good afternoon, everyone. My name is uh, Stamatis Santanis. I'm the chairman and CEO of Synergy Maritime Holdings, and I'm also the founder, chairman, and CEO of United Maritime Holdings. It's a great honor for me to be here and uh, present this uh, very interesting panel with some leading personalities uh, from uh, around the world. They represent a group uh, of charterers that uh, combine they move hundreds of millions of uh, cargo per year, whether that is, uh, uh, I don't know, coal, grains, uh, crude oil, containers, um, refined products, and all that. So I'm very happy to have this uh, uh, very strong panel here. The combined market cap and uh, sales uh, revenues of uh, the people, the, the, the companies tonight, today is uh, uh, in the trillions of dollars per year. So um, they also represent a fundamental demand driver for the industry, so I'm very happy uh, to be here today and I would like to thank uh, Nicholas for giving me the opportunity to have a very, very practical discussion that is going to be divided into three key elements. The first is geopolitics, so we're going to be discussing about the current geopolitical situation and how that has affected the global trading routes. The second is about um, sustainability and how are the charters viewing the future of propulsion and uh, the new vessels and uh, everything associated with efficiency and sustainability. And the, number, the third element is the human factor. Are the crews on board the ships capable and suitable for the uh, changes that are coming and uh, how do we invest in the right partners in order to make sure that we adapt into the new situation. That being said, I would like to present, uh, first of all, Mr. George Wells from Cargill. Second is Matt from uh, Chevron. He came from London as well. Uh, George came from Geneva. And then is Heidi. Heidi comes from Equinor, um, from Norway. Um, then we have Bud. Bud is um, from the MSC group, and he's dealing mostly uh, with containers. And then we have Scott from what I see over there. Scott is uh, responsible for Oldendorf's uh, Energy and Sustainability Department. And last but not least is Andrea Olivi from Trafigura coming from Geneva. Uh, before we start, I would like each one of the uh, participants to uh, present uh, himself uh, or herself. And uh, then we can start with a question. So George, if you can start, please. Thank you, Samartis. I'm um, very happy to be here. Um, hope everyone had a a good lunch and not too sleepy as we head into this panel. Um, so I work for Cargill Ocean Transportation based in Geneva. Um, we are a pure charter, we don't own vessels, but we operate over 700 vessels at any one time across all dry bulk sizes from coasters to Newcastle Maxes and as well as product tankers. Um, in terms of my role, I best, probably the best way to describe it, I try and bridge the, the gap between um, decarbonization ideas and R&D and reality. So I try and help bring things to the water. Um, so whether that's working with owners on simple energy saving device products, um, encouraging them to use better paint, to wind propulsion, which hopefully we'll talk about a bit more later, to use of biofuel, and, and now recently also um, with methanol. Um, all the projects I work on obviously need to work for both parties, both the owner and the charterer. So it's very important that we structure it in such a way. But it's also super important that both sides accept that there is an element of risk that they need to take on to bring these new technologies and new products to the water. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm uh, Matt Caddock. I'm the senior commercial manager for Chevron Shipping um, based out of London. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So my thanks to uh, Capital Link for the invitation. Um, my role is essentially uh, in charge of uh, commercial shipping um, for Chevron from the Atlantic Basin to, to the AG. Um, our role in the shipping company um, is twofold. We, we own and operate um, a number of ships from LNG carriers, LPG carriers, uh, crude tankers all the way through to uh, CPP uh, product tankers. And we provide marine uh, expertise to Chevron Corporation as a whole. Um, so we, uh, we, we own and operate about 30 ships and then we're a, a fairly major charterer um, in the oil and gas uh, market. So uh, looking forward to the discussion. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Heidi, please. Yeah, 
Hello, my name is Heidi Walker and uh, I'm working for Equinor. Uh, I'm heading up the global tanker on behalf of our company, which includes the shuttle tankers and more of the conventional fleet. Uh, it's an honor to be invited to sit on the panel today. It's quite overwhelming to come from Norway and look at this enormous audience with so many great shipping people. Uh, I think today has also been a great personal learning journey, journey for me, sitting in, listening in to all these interesting speakers. And besides that, uh, living in Norway, for those of you who have visited us, uh, you know that it's a blessing to come to Athens and finally realize that there is the sun shining on, the, on a blue sky. So good to be here. <laughs> thank you. Uh, Bud? Yeah, uh, thank you. It's also a great pleasure for me to be here today on behalf of MSC Group and the Aponte family. Uh, my job is in addition to managing government relations around the world in the 155 countries that we operate in, I'm also responsible for integration of internal and external policy drivers and trying to predict what's coming um, at us and how to develop strategies to bring that to reality. And I think that's no better illustrated than the challenge that everyone in this room is facing when it comes to decarbonizing our sector. So I spend a great deal of time on that. Uh, in addition to being the world's largest liner shipping company with about 780 uh, ships on the water, uh, over 600 of those, well over 600 of those are owned and operated by us. Um, and the balance chartered in. Uh, we also are the third largest cruise line in the world, and uh, we have a couple of dozen large ocean-going ropax vessels, a couple of dozen high-speed craft, and more recently, trains and airplanes too. So uh, it, it's really, it's a exciting time to be in this industry, and if you live to solve problems professionally, which is what I really enjoy doing, there's no better industry to be in right now because we're not gonna run out of these challenges to solve anytime soon, and look forward to, um, to working with others to do that. Thank you, bud. Uh, Scott? Thank you, Stamatis. I'm Scott Bergeron. I'm with Oldendorf Carriers, a German dry bulk company. We're operating between six and 700 ships on any given day. Last week, I was the head of our global engagement and sustainability group, working um, mainly with our clients to help them with their decarbonization objectives and trying to find ways to reduce carbon. Uh, yesterday, I started my new position as a member of the board with the responsibility of our own fleet of 120 ships. So now all of my great ideas to reduce carbon, uh, I have to apply to our ships myself. <laughs> So I've gotten myself into a little bit of a pickle. But it's good to be here. Nice to see you all. Thank you. Uh, Andrea? Congratulations on your new position. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Andrea Olivi. I look after Trafigura oil and gas uh, chartering uh, activities. Trafigura today is a big user of shipping capacity. Trafigura moves about 7 million, uh, trades about 7 million barrels a day of oil. We control a fleet of about 400 vessels, of which about 65-70% is wet, meaning oil and gas. Um, a lot of my time for the last 12-18 months has been spent formulating and executing Trafigura chartering strategy with a particular focus on decarbonization. Why is it important for us to decarbonize? Our banks are asking to do so our people want us to do so, and our customers uh, want us to do so. Thank you very much. Thank you. So um, I'm going to start with uh, the current uh, geopolitical situation. China, as you all know, has been uh, the largest uh, demand driver in the world, uh, not just uh, for uh, uh, tankers, but also for dry bulk and containers and everything associated with that. We have recently experienced a slowdown in China, and I uh, just wanted to hear your opinion about the Chinese uh, demand uh, and supply, of course, uh, growth over the next few years. And I'm going to start with George. Do you see China losing its key role in the global trade gradually, or the last couple of years have been just, you know, the COVID-related um, headache? Um, I'll speak obviously mainly from a dry bulk perspective, but um, no, China is super important for dry bulk, um, importing all manner of dry bulk commodities from minerals, obviously coal, iron ore, bauxite, and of course grains to, to feed the people and, and the animals there. 
Um, we did see a decrease in volumes entering into China, particularly in 2021, but they were still above COVID, pre-COVID levels. And now this year, in particular, we've seen quite a big jump again. We're back to the levels of uh, 2021, um, um, if not better. So 22 was, was the low, 23 is, is a lot better. Um, I don't think when you're talking of China, though, it's not purely about volume that drives rates and impacts rates within dry bulk. Um, it's the efficiency of the supply chains that's super important as well. And what main could be one of the impacts maybe keeping um, dry bulk levels um, lower than they might be, given the volumes, is um, the lack of congestion in Chinese ports. The, the, they've really improved the efficiency of the supply chains there, and that has had the effect of um, increasing supply through the lack of congestion. So it's, uh, it's not just as simple as volumes going to China, there's more to it than that. Yeah. Thank you. I would like a follow-up comment from uh, Bud, please, uh, about China and whether you believe there's going to be a reshaping of the global trading routes associated with China in the near future. Yeah, thank you. And if you gave me the chance, I'd, I'd love to speak for an hour about this subject. <laughs> but um, I was just in China the last two weeks, and I'm actually going back there next week. And first of all, you know, about our business, and uh, you know, I think most of shipping this is true, we're a conduit for global trade. And when it comes to liner shipping, uh, whatever the customers decide to do with their operations, we have to adapt our networks to meet them. And that includes uh, characteristics like if they want decarbonized shipping and they want it sooner rather than later. We have to come to the plate and we have to satisfy that need by adapting our networks. Um, when it comes to the reshaping of the trade lanes, uh, we don't really see anything happening too quickly. And I think the rhetoric over reshoring or nearshoring doesn't really match up with the actual business decisions that we're seeing that, again, we have to adapt to one way or the other. And even if it does go much farther than it's gone today, China is going to continue to be an extremely important market. It's a growing import market for sure, and with a growing middle class and 1.3 billion people. And on the export side, even if their growth slows down to you know, 2%, 3% of consumer good production, that's starting off from a base that's enormous. So they're going to continue to be extremely important, but we are seeing migration of supply chains as our customers try and diversify that into other places in Southeast Asia, into India, and I think we'll see more and more of that into Sub-Saharan Africa. So what we need to do is we need to project into the future, make investments to be ready to do that, ready to accommodate that so we can keep world trade moving as we did as an entire industry during the pandemic. I mean, if you think about it, the world economy had the opportunity to completely collapse around us in 2020 and 2021. And it didn't because we were all there to answer the call. And maybe more importantly, our seafarers were there every single day under great hardship. And I think we shouldn't let people forget that anytime soon as we go through what's a bit of a down cycle in some uh, sectors right now, but also some hard times as we figure out how we're going to meet this challenge to decarbonize. Thank you. Great. Okay. And uh, that's actually a very good pass for the uh, next question I have uh, for Scott. Do you see India or other countries in the Southeast Asia uh, becoming dominant in the global dry bulk trade or the global trade altogether? I mean, you from Oldendorf must be doing a lot of business with India and all that. So how do you see India's emergence as a key strategic player uh, for demand in the Southeast Asia? I think it's been a question for a long time. When is, when is India truly going to arrive? When are we going to see this explosive growth that we're, we're expecting from such a huge population and such a capable country? Um, yeah, the signs are there. The, the, the trade is growing. Um, I think coming back to your question uh, on China, I think we're seeing a bit of a maturity happening in, in China and, and the movement away from heavy infrastructure towards more technology, more focus on security. So you can see things maturing there. Uh, so it, it does feel that both India and even Africa, um, their, their time is coming. I, I don't think we're there yet, but I think the, the, the signs are, are headed in the right direction. And we are seeing 
if we just talk about bauxite, iron ore, and, and coal, um, you're seeing more, more in India, in and out, and more in West Africa. So not there yet, but the signs are looking better than they have. Great. The next topic is uh, mostly for our uh, tanker panelists, and that uh, is going to discuss a little bit about the war situation, um, Russia's invasion in Ukraine, and how that has affected the global trading routes. We have uh, experienced a massive increase in tanker freight rates uh, the last uh, year or so, and that has been associated with the recent war situation. So. I'm going to ask uh, first Heidi, and then a follow-up from Andrea. How do you see the situation of the new tanker routes that have been developed right now, um, arising from the war between Russia and Ukraine? Heidi. Thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's a big question. <laughs> when it comes to Equinor, we have our three strategic pillars. It's oil and gas production, it's low carbon and carbon capture, and then it's the ultimate green, the renewable space. And before uh, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, we very much uh, focused on delivering on these three pillars. However, when we find ourselves in a situation where Europe is actually being threatened when it comes to energy security, we had to revisit our plans, not the strategy, but our plans, how to action, how to support Europe with the energy security, and at the same time not losing track of uh, the energy transition as such. Specifically to, to how that has impacted us, uh, some of you might be aware of that we have uh, our beautiful Johan Sverdrup crude oil in the North Sea, which was set up quite a lot to actually sail to, as mentioned, China. I'm not a China specialist by any means, but just sort of a comment to the previous question that I think history has learned us that China, they have long-term plans. China steer towards growth, and if they fail, maybe the word fail is not in the vocabulary, but anyhow, I allow myself to say that, they adjust. So I have no reason to believe that there wouldn't be a demand coming from China in the years to come either. Anyhow, our Johan Sverdrup had to find another home uh, because uh, all the euros were more or less disappearing from Europe. Uh, and we had to do our utmost to make sure that we could provide Europe also with the crude oil, leading to a different tanker segment. The workhorses, the Aframaxes, took a lot of our time to manage and optimize. And the long-haul VLCCs, that was a, a different uh, ball game coming up. So for us, it's been very much about logistical efforts. It's, of course, uh, being commercial and at the same time educating ourselves, what does these sanctions mean? Uh, in the sharp end, uh, how to interpret it, how to make sure that we are compliant, how to make that we optimize according to shareholders, but also looking after our reputation uh, and, and not taking the wrong steps into, into that space. That's a great thing. I believe that uh, energy security of Europe and the world could be uh, easily a good topic for a panel, Nicola. So um, I would like a follow-up comment from Andrea on this uh, matter, please, if you may. I think uh, since the conflict started, we are seeing a lot of inefficiencies. And, uh, and they are making our job uh, very, very difficult, very complicated. Um, we have sanctions to deal with. We have an international fleet which, unfortunately, it's shrinking, and we're spending a lot of time looking into this. Uh, more than 450 vessels were sold from international ship owners into Middle Eastern and, uh, and, and Chinese entities, uh, into the so-called dark fleet. These are vessels that are leaving Western ship owners, and there are vessels that are very difficult for international companies like Equinor or like Trafigura to, uh, to fix. So we're quite, we're quite worried about this. And as I said, we're spending uh, a lot of time looking into this. Um, we are seeing a, a shift in the ownership uh, landscape. Uh, I think this year, for the first time, China took over Greece. 
as uh, world's leading uh, maritime nation on okay, a gross tonnage point that of was, view. That was a marginal thing. Marginal. Sorry, on a gross tonnage point of view. But it's important to talk about this because it's, it's something that we're looking at and it's something uh, which is alarming us. And everyone is focusing on the demand side and the inefficiencies that we are creating on the demand side, but there are also inefficiencies on the supply side and we just all need to, uh, to see them and understand them. That's uh, great, Andrea, thank you. And uh, that gives me actually um, uh, the pass for a follow-up question to uh, Matt, first of all, and then to Heidi. Assuming that uh, the war ended tomorrow, would the tanker trade go back to its initial shape? I mean, would things be as it were right before? Where would that leave us, again, assuming that the war would end tomorrow? Matt, if you want to take that, please. That's an interesting question. I think it's difficult to be um, exact about that. I think my gut reaction to uh, to the question around would train flows um, resume as they were is, is probably no. I think that's extremely unlikely um, for a number of reasons. Um, one of the things that was um, perhaps making the tanker market look interesting uh, prior to the invasion of Ukraine was uh, the post-COVID recovery that was expected in the market. Um, overlaid with um, some of the, uh, the sort of more interesting aspects related to um, incoming environmental regulations. When you look at uh, new build supply capacity, that's a, that's probably a concern as well as Andreas mentioned. So um, this sort of movement of, uh, of, of vessels into the dark fleets, or the so-called dark fleet, um, that's that's a concern as, uh, as Andreas said as well. So I think um, as, as we look forward, um, you would probably see um, an overhang of sanctions concern. I think it would be difficult um, for the vessels that have traded in the dark fleet to return to um, the international tanker fleet. I think there would be a reluctance. Um, on behalf of uh, some international charters to, to look at those vessels. Um, and I think on a longer term basis, um, when you look at supply demand fundamentals, then um, particularly on the sort of crude oil side, we have new supply uh, coming in out of um, Latin America, Brazil, Argentina, Guyana. Um, the TMX pipeline in, uh, in Canada has potential to, to be particularly impactful for Aframax trade flows. And then I think uh, on the CPP side of things, you've obviously um, got uh, refinery growth in India uh, and China, and that looks uh, to be reshaping on a permanent basis uh, for long-haul uh, product flow back back west. So um, I think the, um, the to answer the question, I think it's it, it's unlikely in my view that we would um, we would see those trade flows pick up uh, as a sort of immediate consequence of uh, of the conflicts uh, being resolved. Uh, that's great. I would like a follow-up comment from uh, Heidi, please, on that uh, matter, if you may. I very much agree with Matt. Uh, I don't think it will return to how it used to be. Uh, why? Uh, one example is this, that we have seen is that refineries have uh, started to be adjusted to new crude oils as one example. So why should they necessarily go straight back to what it used to be? We have now, together in the value chain, uh, increased the optionality and the flexibility. So, so that by itself, uh, market is, is, is working. And then I think there will be uh, business partners that is very careful with going straight back into what it used to be. Normally, industry has a short memory. Market and demand fixes everything. But I think there, there is a lot of of, uh, let's say, passion about what will happen. So, so we are careful with, with stepping straight back into how it used to be. And I think it's a good thing because it shows that we are able to adapt uh, for the better and creating a different type of flexibility in the, in the value chains. Great. Um, I will go back to Andrea. He mentioned the word inefficiency before. And I would like to ask him, uh, for him in uh, Trafigura, how is it operating in a world that is going under a deglobalization phase? We now have sanctions, we have tariffs. How is that in your day-to-day -day life within the company when you need to operate in a trading environment with so many different regimes? It's very hectic, but it's also rewarding because in a way, Trafigura solves inefficiency. Our, our role is to make the market more efficient, more efficient. So the more inefficiencies we see in the market, well then it gives us a chance to play a, a bigger role. Uh, 
What we have noticed over the last 12, 18 months is that the interaction uh, between various teams, chartering, shipping operations, compliance, legal, has become extremely, uh, extremely important, more than, uh, more than ever, really. And I think this is really our strength, uh, the teamwork that, uh, that really helps us. Great. Excellent. Thank you. I will now go to the second phase of uh, this discussion. We're going to talk about uh, the decarbonization element, but without being um, very um, technical about the subject, uh, I will try to be practical about the subject. It's the first time after many, many years that uh, owners and charters are participating together in building new ships, in developing new technologies, and I would like to uh, discuss the expertise of uh, the uh, panelists today about this kind of thing. So, it's going to be divided into two little uh, areas here. The first is whether we invest on the existing ships and uh, whether we develop new vessels uh, to cope with the future and the new environmental regulation. So I will start with Scott and then a follow-up uh, from Bad as to whether investing in the energy efficiency of the existing fleet might actually prove to be more beneficial given that building additional vessels will increase the current CO2 carbon footprint. So, uh, Scott, can you start, please, by saying what do you do with the investments in your existing fleet? How do you make them more efficient? And uh, how do you see that as compared to uh, new buildings? Right. Well, I, I agree with your thesis that you know, building new ships for the sake of capturing new technology has some type of inefficiency built in and it's somehow wasteful and we can't lose sight of the carbon that's being produced to build new ships when we still have uh, plenty of ships with their useful service life available. And I think I find it a bit frustrating when we attend these conferences and there's a lot of cheering and the time is now and we have to make change and everything is ready. It's just a matter of the ship owners and the charters agreeing to pay. But that's not really truthful because the technology isn't where it needs to be. And, and this is both in the upgrades and the devices and, and, and so many different vendors coming to us with, frankly, undercapitalized technology that really is not yet fit for purpose. Um, and similarly with, with the new fuels. Uh, we heard already today that the new fuels aren't ready. The engines for most of the new fuels aren't ready. Even if we talk about methanol, for example, um, for the ships that used to mount us and, and we operate in Cape size, uh, methanol engines on that size, uh, 70, 80 bore engines, they're not ready yet. We can't mm. order these ships. Uh, so yeah, what are we doing? You know, we have to invest in our existing fleet. Um, Oldendorf, we were quite lucky in our timing and we ordered um, a lot of our fleet during the, the improved eco days. So. We're still riding on some of those laurels of the recent investments of a modern, you know, as, as efficient ships as you could order at the time. Uh, but we are looking and, and doing almost everything that makes sense. But there has to be a sensible return on the investment. Um, a lot of these ideas that come, there's no business case for it. Um, you, you can't put super expensive devices on ships that you will never pay it back. Um, so I won't get into the specifics of the projects we're doing, but if they, make, if they make commercial sense, and that means having a partner that also has decarbonization objectives, and we can work on something together on the cargo side, then we do the same with the owner's side. And so very much investing in the existing ships today and looking for when the ships that will meet our specifications going forward, then we'll be ready to order those. Yeah, but the uh, follow-up comment uh, from you, if you can. I mean, you operate a huge fleet of chartered in and also own vessels. You operate some older ships, and you also have a big new building program. So where do you stand on that front? I mean, how does that um, you know, become your policy for the next uh, five to 10 years? Yeah, thank you. And we historically have not commented too much over time on our order book, and we leave that to others to comment on. But um, I think the facts speak for themselves, and you know I can tell you we have 
over 90 uh, <laughs> dual fuel LNG ships uh, on order right now and in the process of being delivered. We've already taken delivery of 10 of those. Um, so with the new ships, because this is a time when we have felt we needed to engage in fleet renewal and also be ready to grow, should the market conditions warrant that to be the place we want to end up in, we needed the tonnage. And what can you do with the tonnage? And that's build in as much flexibility as you can if you need to build ships now. And that means more CapEx up front that you've got to take into account, um, having a lot of uncertainty about the OpEx later on. And why we chose LNG right now is you can make a difference today, a modest difference, with fossil-based LNG, but we're working very hard to open up the supply chains to bio and synthetic forms of that molecule. Um, we don't think that fossil LNG is the future. It's the transitional fuel we have available right now until the bio and synthetic forms are ready. We also are building in flexibility into some of those ships where they'll be constructed with tanks that are capable of withstanding the corrosion properties of ammonia. And we're also building other ships that uh, are being built with a view towards when the technology readiness is there and the fuel supply for methanol is more real than it is at the moment at scale, we'll be able to facilitate a conversion to that. Because as I said before, we need to do what the customers need and we'll adapt um, to do that. But when it comes to the rest of the fleet and even with the kind of big numbers I just threw out there, that's still a small minority of, of our fleet. You can't forget about think about it in macro terms, the 60,000 ship tail that the rest of the industry is dragging around, we've got to do something with those ships. And energy efficiency always made sense from a business standpoint. We realized it makes sense from an environmental standpoint, but I think it's going to be even more important for the future than it is today. So we are focusing very heavily on that for the existing ships and also new features in the newer ships because in the future, all of these fuels we're talking about have density challenges associated with them. So aside from the obvious fact that if you're trying to minimize fuel costs at you know, $600 to $800 a ton, where really we might be talking about the equivalent of four dollars to $5,000 a ton with some of these new fuels, at least until the markets stabilize out in the future, those energy efficiency savings percentage-wise are going to be even more valuable then with the new fuels. And the other thing about the density challenge is you need less of it on board. And if you need less of it on board, you start to overcome some of these challenges you might have with the need for a frequency of bunkering or just how much capacity you can bring on with fuel and not infringe so much on the cargo carrying space that you ruin the business model for the ship. So, you know, I won't go into a lot of detail on it, but for example, you know, we're the biggest customer of the largest vendor of air lubrication systems. And we find for the right ships and the right operating profile, that works real well. Um, and we've heard earlier today some other people talk about uh, innovations on, on energy efficiency. We're, th there isn't something out there we haven't looked at or are trialing or already deploying because that existing ship component is something we can't forget about because even if we flipped a switch today and said, okay, the fuels are ready, the yards are not capable of replacing 60,000 ships quickly. It's going to take decades to do that. Thank you. Great. Um, George, uh, Cargill has been uh, in headlines all over the place and for many, many years now um, with a very strong pledge for new technologies. Uh, I saw recently wind propellers, uh, sorry, wind propulsion and all that. So can you please explain uh, again in a practical way where do you currently stand on this front and uh, why do you invest in so many different technologies? I think um, we look at it in different phases and different um so the, the cost of decarbonization as a curve. And there are things that you can do now that we know have a payback. And there are, everybody should be doing those, whether it's newest ducts, improving the paint specification, LEDs, all the super simple things that we know work today and have a relatively short payback even at these relatively low fuel prices. As we shift into the new fuels, some of the other more sort of radical technologies such as wind will become more commercial, but we want to test them today. We want to make sure that they work. We want to understand the performance that they have, and that's why we've um, moved into wind. We're a big believer in wind as an alternative fuel. 
if you like, and actually that's how it's going to be treated under the fuel EU rules. It is considered as a fuel. Um, so we're super excited to have um, two vessels on the water now with wind propulsion. The one, it's hard to miss in the news, the Pixis Ocean with the, the wing sails. Just finished loading in Brazil and is heading to Europe. So if anybody's in Poland towards the end of the month, you'll be able to see it sailing past um, Copenhagen, hopefully. And we also have the TR Lady with um, uh, three um, rotors on board. So it's really exciting to be able to compare the performance of the two. Um, our firm intention is to, is to scale up that program um, where we can and looking for owners to work with us. In fact, the Pixis Ocean is a good example. That whole conversation started with a conversation about putting a Muir stopped on a Camzamax, and we ended up putting three 40-meter-high, two 40-meter-high wing sails on board. So it needs to be an open dialogue between charters and, and owners to, to move this forward. Um, but having said that, I think as you push forward, particularly with the new IMO strategy, it's very clear we're going to have to move to new fuels. Um, we're not going to hit the targets they've set. Um, in fact, they've actually set energy um, goals to, for fuel coming from hydrogen-based sources of five, striving for 10 by 2030. Um, so we, we can't avoid moving to these new fuels. What you can do today is biofuel. Um, we've, we've been very active in that space too. Um, on our own fleet, we've bunkered close to 30,000 tons, and our fuel team's selling biofuels to third parties, um, mainly liners actually. Um, I think we've done 70,000 tons in the last couple of months. So there's active demand for biofuel. That's another something that can be done today with very little um, additional effort. Thank you. The next question is uh, for Matt, that uh, he's representing a US oil major um, in Greece today. So I want to ask you, do you have any new building program right now? And uh, if you do, is that to satisfy your transportation needs for the company? Is it for the development of uh, new um, fuels and new technologies? Or is it just for strategic uh, positioning altogether? So where do you stand on that front? Yeah, thanks. That's a, uh, it's an inter interesting question. The answer is probably all three. Um, we um, have been active in uh, supporting new builds um, programs uh, in recent years. Um, both on a time charter front, a bare boat uh, front, um, across a number of different sectors. We, um, we've done that for strategic reasons. We've also done that because we think um, taking new build vessels at the time that we, uh, we contracted them was probably the uh, easiest avenue open to us, um, bearing in mind all of the uncertainties around um, future fuels, etc. Um, that, that the industry is dealing with to be able to reduce our emissions uh, from shipping related operations um, quickly and, uh, and, and immediately. Um, with some of our um, uh, new builds that we've contracted, for example, in the uh, LPG space, the VLGCs that we have, um, we've um, worked with the owner to uh, get those coated suitable for the carriage of ammonia. So, that's one thing that our um, new business division uh, dedicated to renewable energy, Chevron New Energies, um, was very keen that uh, we sort of future-proof those ships for future trading. Um, so that's probably one tangible example of where we've, we've um, looked to sort of manage future uh, uncertainties in the business, but also opportunities in the business and build that into our shipping portfolio. But in general terms, yes, we, uh, we have been looking at new builds um, as a way of, uh, of reducing emissions and that, that, um, that opportunity was one we were, we were keen to grasp. Thank you. Now that uh, everybody has uh, warmed up, I would like to bring uh, the billion dollar or the trillion dollar question. Um, why aren't ships just slowing down? I mean, we have experienced as a company that one or two knots down in the global speed effectively leads to a massive reduction of CO2 emissions. I mean, and I believe that the solution is very obvious over there. And I'm going to ask bad because containers have been very disciplined in the speed reduction and the efficiency of the trade of the last few years. I mean, from our side, it's very obvious that slowing down the fleet leads to a much lower emissions altogether without any exotic solution. So, but how do you, um, you know, comment on that? Yeah, I'm actually glad you directed that one at me because 
Not all ships are created equal, first of all, when it comes to the ability to reduce emissions by just slowing down. And it varies a lot depending on where you are operating typically relative to the power curve for that particular ship. So for example, if you have a ship, uh, as we do you know, some in our sector, that can operate at 25 knots, okay, if I go to 24 or 23, I see a really big difference. But once I get to the flatter part of the curve, and it's an exponential curve, it's not a linear curve, you have to slow down a very large amount to get a significant fuel savings. That being said, you do get some, and you see it naturally in the market when fuel prices go real high or the market goes soft. You do see you know, some slowing down, but you don't get the kind of big gains that you do if, say, you have a 14-knot ship that goes 13 or, or, or 12 knots when you're talking about ships that are designed to go faster. What does that mean for the future? Well, I think it probably means power limitations, but that has implications too. And for our sector, which is very time sensitive because of the needs of the customers, it will in large part be driven by their appetite for slower services. And also, the slower the networks move, the more tonnage is required. And I think that's the same for no matter what type of ship you're really operating. And when we do that with container ships in particular, the customers have to maintain a lot more investment in floating stock in order to maintain the same frequency of delivery. So there's an implication for them too that makes it not quite as easy for all ships as, as, as it seems like it might be on its face. But I mean, let's face it, with the CII and the EEXI, once you've done the easy stuff, there's kind of nothing left but to slow down. And so you are seeing a lot of power limitations come in to be um, um, you know, the, the result of those regulations. And I'm not gonna say a lot very kind about the CII because it's very limited uh, in what it can actually do towards its goal. But one thing I think that has been positive is it's forced us all to think about that relationship between the charterer and the owner because you can't properly operate under a CII regime or maybe some of the others we're seeing without a much higher level of collaboration between those two parties. And I, I don't think it's right to say it's all on one party, it's all on the other party. Everybody's got to be in this together um, to make it work. And you know, perhaps we need to open our eyes a little bit and think about you know, maybe there are different types of charter parties beyond the three basic ones we have right now that we may see in the future. That's, um, that's a great answer, and I appreciate that. But I would like a follow-up uh, comment from Scott. Scott is representing um, a huge drybal company that is transporting mainly iron ore, bauxite, and coal. So the product itself, it's not so sensitive for the consumers. Where do you stand on you know, speed reduction as compared to new buildings altogether? Well, I, I think we are seeing the fleet slowing down. If we're to believe trade winds and, and the people who provided them some information this week, um, and they say that this year has been the slowest year on record for dry bulk. Um, so I don't think we have to argue whether or not reducing the speed saves fuel, um, with the caveats that Bud just mentioned with the, the, the speed consumption curve. And it's not just this idea that every knot you slow down, there, there is a, a nadir there. Uh, but what I think the, the real answer is, is the metrics, right? Right now, ships are sailing basically the most economical speed basis, the variables that people are using, which is the market value of the ship, the price of fuel, the geographic location against the market opportunity for the next cargo. So you run these calculations and you end up with your optimized speed and you balance that against the cargo wishes. I mean, if you're um, a major miner and you have X million of millions of tons to move from here to there uh, over one year period against your offtake agreements, you don't want to hear about slowing down because you've programmed so many voyages on a certain size ship throughout that year. And if suddenly the owner or the operator is coming to you and saying, okay, we're going to slow the ship down so we can get a better CII score, then suddenly you're adding more ships into the freight program, and that doesn't resonate so well with, with the commodity interest. So we need better metrics. And again, I'm on the party that says the CII is not fit for purpose. But if you look at a metric such as CO2 per tons carried, 
and you use that variable along with the price of fuel and the market value of the ship and the, the commodity schedule, and you start putting in all the right variables, then I think you're going to come to the speed that produces the best CO2 emission result. That's, uh, that's great. And final comment on that subject uh, from Andrea, please. We have experienced uh, the last year and a half older, much older tankers, not of course under your uh, commercial management, but uh, especially those under the gray fleet, running at excessive speeds. So vessels, tankers built in the early 2000s, 2004, 2006, 2008, very poorly maintained, running at 15, 16, 14, 14 and a half knots. Does that pose a danger, in your opinion, in, to the environment? Does that pose an environmental risk altogether? How do you see that from the sidelines, monitoring this kind of trade? I'm very glad that you mentioned this, because as we were talking about reducing speed, I was thinking about 22 years old Aframax sailing from Russia to China at 15 knots. I think we have massively increased the risk profile of our industry. I think we're very lucky that we've had no serious incidents yet, but I think the more time goes by, the higher is the risk of, of having a major pollution incident on, on one of these vessels. So I think it's, uh, it's almost uh, inevitable uh, if you want, and I am actually surprised that, that not more has been done to kind of prevent this from, uh, from happening. Great. Um, a quick comment uh, from Heidi, if you may, about the CII clauses in your charter parties and uh, where do you stand on all these new um, environmental coming up from the EU, like the UTS and CII. How do you see that as Equinor in your future dealings with clients? To me, CII is another measure that we are trying to comply with. Uh, there are practical parts with it, not everything is logical, but anyhow is one measure that we are exploring and that we will be faced with as a charter and that might lead to certain dilemmas between us and the ship owner. However, uh, I'd like to use this opportunity not to talk about CII. Um, a gentleman today said something about that world trade is uh, around, carried by, by the ocean, 80 to 85 percent. Are you, are we, am I in a protection mode, or are we there to contribute to a change? Are we there to embrace the fact that it is possible, finding technical solution, that it is possible to find incentive schemes for a certain period of time to accommodate the not so efficient value chains? Are we there to make sure that we find safe, solutions for the crew that is on board and for the people working in, in the harbor? I believe so. This industry has shown for so many years that we are capable of not being in protection mode, but we're actually there to contribute to, to change. And also, I would hate to see that this discussion ends up as a let's, uh, can we afford uh, decarbonization at the expense of inequality in the world? So we have some pretty fundamental questions that is sitting on our shoulders that we need to contribute to, make happen. Not everyone is as fortunate as us, but we need to make sure that we are lifting the economy across the world and contribute to demand. There is a footprint coming from our value chains, and I can totally say that, being part of an oil and gas producer for longer. However, I do believe there are plenty of measures that can be taken to see this move uh, in the right direction. I loved the presentation that was up earlier on uh, about the human factor and the human element. And I think that is truly part of the equation. And we start to talk more now also about the just transition. So these are huge, complex matter, but I've never ever spent so much time uh, as a leader to discuss technology, just transition, being commercial, dilemmas between short and long term, but I think it's intellectually super interesting and it's actually bringing the community together in a very different way compared to how it was in previous years. So not too much about CII, but I just wanted to share that as a leader. Thank you. That uh, gives me a great opportunity to ask uh, 
the last question to some of the largest uh, owners of the Chatters panel right now. So I'm going to start with Bud and a follow-up question from Scott, if you may. The human element, I mean, we talk about the crew well-being and uh, we talk about all these new technologies coming up and everything. Um, we're trying to impose a number of new devices, fuels, all these uncertain things on board our vessels. But at the same time, the fleet is getting bigger, the global fleet, and the people working on board the ships, our crew members and our officers, are becoming more difficult to find, especially the quality ones. So how do you deal with the human factor? Is the crew ready to adapt and change? Because you know we can go about in conferences and stuff and discuss about all these uh, nice things about technology and new devices and new fuels, but is the crew ready? I mean, can we source the right people on board the vessels to, for example, make a bunkering operation of ammonia or something like that. I mean, where do we stand on that front? So, Bad and the follow-up question uh, from Scott, please. I feel very, very strongly about this subject. Uh, we absolutely cannot forget about the human element, the human factor. That means proper recruitment, proper training, and retention of the most valuable resource our industry has, which is our seafarers. And not only will this not happen, this energy transition, without the right seafarers with the right training who want to stay in the job. But there's no way it can happen safely unless we've done our part as ship owners or others in the community um, to make sure we've not just checked boxes, but that we have really gone the extra mile. And I think the work of the Just Transition Task Force is a good starting point. I also think that the comprehensive review of the STCW convention, which has been launched at IMO, is an opportunity not to be missed because I don't think there is a better illustration of how the convention has been run over by time and is no longer fit for purpose than its inability to really provide seafarers with the training that they would need to actually contribute and contribute safely in the long term for this energy transition. I would also like to see any revenues that are generated through an economic measure at IMO or maybe regional economic measures um, to be um, allocated some of that into training seafarers, particularly from developing countries. I think everybody wins in that scenario, and I don't see any reason why there should be a policy obstacle to getting that done to help this along, because I think a little investment can go a really long way. Thank you. Great. Uh, Follow-up comment from Scott, please. I see we're out of time, and my good <laughs> friend to my right, he likes to talk a lot, so I, I just echo Bud's comments, and I just say that, you know, as I'm stepping into my new role, this is probably my single biggest concern, is the future of our seafarers. It's a huge challenge, and the bottom line is we need to invest in them more. If the ships are going to become more complex, the trade's going to become more complex, the people are going to have to um, be more dynamic, and the seafarers have to be given uh, the, the attention that they deserve. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for attending our panel today. And thanks uh, to all the speakers.